0: So, warmly welcome everyone uh, to today's webinar discussion on security human rights in Eastern Europe, which effectively is about The protracted conflicts and the significance and relevance of these uh, for European security and European security order. I'm very happy uh, to uh, host this seminar on behalf of the Stockholm Center for Eastern European Studies in Stockholm at the Swedish Institute for International Affairs together with OSW and uh, PISM in in Warsaw, the Center for Eastern European Studies, OSW, and the Polish Institute for International Affairs. Today's topic is probably more uh, uh, topical and timely than ever, with Russia's escalation uh, towards Ukraine uh, uh, ongoing and and, and, and one of the largest security crises in European uh, uh, security for quite some years. And also, as we have seen, uh, uh, um, yet another uh, manifestation or expression or formulation of the Russian demands, or red lines, as they were uh, expressed by the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs last week. This is a project which has been running uh, over a year and has been a flagship project of the Swedish it's the Stockholm Center for Eastern European Studies, uh, with all in all nine reports and a tenth summary report, which will be introduced by my colleague John Sachau uh, uh, later on uh, today. And I would like to especially thank uh, Dr. Andreas Omland and Dr. Martin Krag, who are the initiators of this report series and this project, which actually uh, started and was initialized even before Stockholm Center of Eastern European Studies was uh, established. and uh, there is also, uh, we will discuss many uh, aspects of this and not focus particularly on the ongoing Russian Ukrainian crisis, as interesting and relevant as it is, but try to put this in the larger political perspective uh, uh, and, and what this uh, uh, means together with the uh, other conflicts. Uh, since these conflicts are uh, all in one way or another related to OECE, and OEC is involved in them. There is also uh, a, a indirect connection to the, to the outgoing Swedish OSE chairpersonship and the incoming Polish OSE personship. so therefore it's very good to have this bridge today between the sort of Swedish analytical expertise community and our Polish colleagues at the, at the OSW and uh, PiSM here today. Uh, There are many interesting uh, aspects of this, and I think we all realise now that these conflicts are not some um, obscure regional, local, ethnic conflicts which are of no greater concern to the rest of Europe and the transatlantic uh, community. And these conflicts, uh, as the title of John's report, are, are open wounds on the European security. And I think that we, uh, the broader international political community, when dealing with these conflicts, we are faced with two sometimes contradictory or not fully coherent political imperatives. On the one hand, uh, there's always the political uh, uh, imperative, especially in the beginning of a conflict, uh, on the need to act, to stop to use the use of military force, to establish diplomatic uh, negotiation formats and mecha- uh, mechanisms. On the other hand, we have the, the, the imperative to restore respect for international law and the European security order, based on Helsinki uh, final act and the Paris charter and other OEC commitments. And here, uh, a lot of questions arise. How to define the criteria for a solution? Are we today closer to a solution of these conflicts than in comparison as to when they started? Are the existing formats and mechanisms part of the solution or part of the problem? Are we actually dealing with conflict solving, conflict management or conflict conservation? Um, And we also uh, uh, are all realizing these days that we are not dealing with any kind of frozen conflicts. We are dealing with protracted conflicts, and some of them are hot. Uh, And and just to mention that over 14,000 people have died in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. In the larger historical perspective, we are, uh, in a way, dealing with the breakup of Soviet Union, which we uh, uh, just the other day celebrated the 30, 30th anniversary of, which also is a reminder of the idea of a Europe whole, free and at peace, and the, the post-Cold War security order, and which is at stake. There are also many other aspects of this, human rights violations, humanitarian uh, 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 tragedies, and so forth. And we also see uh, the relation to the OSCE uh, com- uh, comprehensive concept of security how uh, respect for human rights democracy and rule of law on the one hand within countries and and, uh, security between states uh, are interrelated there is a connection between internal repression and external uh, uh, regression and often uh, the big debate is on how do we define these conflicts who are the conflict parties Uh, What is the real conflict about? Is it about territorial control or is it about political control of Russia's uh, uh, neighbors to establish a sphere of influence? There are many questions uh, and also related to, as I said, to the format and mechanisms that we will highlight in today's uh, uh, discussion. First, uh, Dr. Andreas Omland will make uh, some introductory remarks to this report series and this project. And then John Sachau, uh, uh, also at the Stockholm Center of uh, uh, Eastern European Studies, will uh, present the main, fi- main findings of his summary report of the other uh, uh, nine reports in this report series. And then I'm very glad to introduce our discussants, uh, cooperation partners, uh, Anna Maria uh, Anna Maria Dyner from from um, the Polish Institute for for uh, uh, International Affairs. Uh, where she is an analyst at the International Security Program, followed by Maran Menkishak, head of the Russia Department at the uh, Center for Eastern European Studies at OSW. And after that, uh, we will have a moderated uh, panel discussions between, among the panelists here uh, on topic up on some of the uh, questions and, and um, aspects they they have brought up uh, in their introductory remarks. And then we will open up the floor for comments and uh, questions from the audience. And for those of you who are attending this through Zoom, please use the Q&A function in the bottom bar of your Zoom screen. And those of you who are watching this uh, via uh, live stream through Facebook, uh, uh, please send your questions uh, uh, on, on the comment uh, uh, function and they will be forwarded to me. We have uh, 90 minutes uh, for this discussion today. The reports can be found and downloaded uh, at the UI uh, uh, homepage. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, through the same uh, address where you uh, registered for or found information uh, about today's webinar. <clears throat> and uh, I also mentioned that of these nine reports in the series, we're still waiting for the publications on, on the ninth one, which is about uh, international law and especially international humanitarian law and the uh, and its applicability to the protracted conflicts and also how to deal with accountability uh, 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 in relationship to, to uh, international law. With these words, uh, I would like to hand over the word to Dr. Andreas Omland. Please, Andreas.
1: Thank you, Frederick. Um, Security and human rights are perhaps the preeminent topics in today Eastern Europe, and especially in what one could call the geopolitical gray zone between uh, the Russian Federation and the European Union. And um, this project has been our flagship uh, project because um, we are dealing here with uh, eventually what I would think at least or as the most important uh, manifestation of these issues in um, post-soviet eastern europe uh, these protected co- conflicts this is not of course the only uh, these are not the only uh, topics that fall under the heading of security and human rights we had for instance also a, a report on um, russia's engagement in afghanistan or on the future of the eastern partnership program or well, we had a webinar with Vladimir Milov from Vilnius and Anastasia Sergeyeva uh, from Warsaw um, uh, during the last year um, at our um, at our center. But um, in a way, uh, this uh, particular subtopic, one could say the protracted conflicts, they are really uh, the main um, issue here. And the last days or last weeks, uh, um, and the events on the Russian-Ukrainian border and also on um Uh, uh, around Ukraine, in Ukraine, they are sort of illustrating uh, this uh, just once more. Uh, Of course, uh, one could also argue that um, uh, these uh, conflicts, they are also uh, just expressions of deeper issues, if you like, uh, in the domestic affairs of the involved countries, especially uh, of, of Russia. Um, there's a good argument to be made for this, and um, the webinar we had with Vladimir Milov and Anastasia Sergeyeva made that, um, uh, uh, illustrated that well. But still, the, uh, the conflict now with Ukraine especially, they, um, uh, these are the main manifestations of these uh, issues, these unsolved issues in Eastern Europe. Um, that's why we designed here a series of 10 reports uh, consisting of three blocks. Um, the first block on Ukraine, the second uh, on the other um, uh, unsolved uh, conflicts in Georgia, uh, Azerbaijan and Moldova, and then a third block about the generic issues that are common to um, all of these protected uh, conflicts. And we were able to um, to recruit for these uh, reports um, a number of, I would say, leading uh, experts on the uh, respective issues. Uh, I will, I will name uh, them uh, then in a minute, and thereby, thereby, to create a snapshot over the last year uh, of these um, of the situation with with these conf- conflicts, both from a regional studies perspective, but also from a sort of disciplinary pr- perspective, from, for instance, international law the um, one of the uh, topics that we have not yet published on, uh, but we're, we're, uh, this week we will finally publish the last um, substantive uh, report. So um, these uh, nine uh, reports and then the 10th one by John Zahau, which uh, summarized it, uh, dealt first uh, with um, the first three uh, of them with Ukraine as uh, the most uh, sort of salient, perhaps, of these protected conflicts we had first. Uh, a report by Halja Koinash from the Kharkiv uh, Human Rights Protection Group on uh, human rights issues in the uh, two um, uh, occupied in, in the occupied territories of the Donbas, the two so-called People's Republics there, and uh, the various issues that people uh, living there um, and passing the contact line there are are facing. Our second report was uh, by Stanislav Asiev and myself on the issues of the prisoners of war um, uh, and the prisoners' exchanges um, in the conflict uh, between these uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Russia-guided separatist entities uh, on the one side and the Ukrainian state on the other side, and the the special aspect of this um, of this report, and uh, was that we had here actually a protagonist, or I would now even say a major protagonist of this conflict. Stanislav Asiev, as you may know, has been um, a journalist, um, an undercover journalist for uh, Radio Liberty in um, in Donetsk, uh, but has been catched then and put into um, the most uh, infamous. Uh, um, Torture prison in um, in the occupied territories, the infamous isolazia, uh, and some call isola- isolation in translation, um, uh, concentration camp. At some as some people say because uh, there is a systematic uh, torture there uh, happening, and this has been also uh, described in this. Um, in this report and Stanislav I if I forgot to say is now a, a link to the Ukrainian Institute for the future. The third report was on the special monitoring mission in um, of the OSCE in in Ukraine which is of course mainly working in, uh, on, in the Donbas uh, this was also worth a separate report because this is a unique so far operation of the OSZE and there are many lessons to be learned from it. It's a particularly large uh, mission. Uh, we also had then um, a presentation of this uh, of this report. Uh, we then had um, a report on uh, the longest conflict in uh, of those that we have analyzed here by Victoria Rosha from the Foreign Policy Association of Moldova on the Transnistrian um, conflict. Uh, uh, a very detailed and uh, report on this uh, already more than uh, or 30 year, almost 30 year old, old uh, conflict that is, in a way, one could argue, the paradigmatic case, and where basically already um, Russia uh, was exercising uh, long before Putin came to power some of the practical, uh, some of the practices that later then we learned um, in the course of the other conflicts. Um, uh, The uh, fifth report, in in my counting here, was by Diana Janse from the Free World um, uh, Forum uh, in in Sweden on uh, the the two uh, conflicts in Georgia uh, around uh, Abkhazia and the Tsrinvali region, better known as uh, South Ossetia. The sixth report was by Stefan Meister from the German uh, Council on Foreign Relations on the Karabakh uh, conflict. Uh, We also had on these uh, two uh, reports, or on the last three reports, we then had webinars. Um, The seventh report was by John Sachau on the um, instrumentalization of the conflicts um, uh, by Russia uh, for uh, uh, larger purposes that Russia has in the post-Soviet space and uh, even beyond, and John is maybe going to speak um, about this in more detail. That's why I'm not going to speak here more about this. The eighth report was by Stefan Wolf, um, Professor of International Security at the University of Birmingham on possible solutions or mechanisms, uh, strategies, processes uh, to uh, solve these conflicts. And here, of course, the, the main focus of this very detailed report a very competent report was on international organizations and in particular the formats under uh, the auspices of the OSCE. And the uh, already mentioned uh, final substantive report is uh, forthcoming on the international law and accountability in relation to the protected conflicts. to be authored by Marika Eriksson and uh, Isaac Malm from the Swedish Defense University. This will come out uh, this week. And then, uh, in a way, we are today also re- re- presenting John Sachau's uh, final report. Um, on this uh, series uh, about uh, which John will uh, speak in a minute. I may also uh, mention that not only these these uh, uh, excellent authors were we were able to recruit for these reports, but also some prominent commentators in the webinars that we um, conducted and that are available on the UI um, uh, video um, YouTube site. Uh, For instance, Veronica Barth, prominent Swedish um, uh, diplomat, William Hill, a former uh, US diplomat who is now at the Cannon Institute in uh, in Washington, Vladimir Sokor from the Jamestown Foundation, whom I'm sure you all know, and Svante Cornell for the uh, Institute for Security um, and Democracy and Policy, uh, who was commenting uh, on on the Caucasus. uh, and I may also already announce now that uh, we will going to publish uh, this uh, snapshot in its entirety as a book. We have already um, concluded the contract with EBITEM Press. Uh, this is not an academic book, the whole, uh, s- strictly speaking, m- m- many of the uh, contributors and commentators were academics, and certainly uh, it fills uh, f- certain academic standards. But our purpose here was not so much uh, uh, to make a, a research contribution. In a, a academic sense, but rather to to uh, paint a broad picture for policymakers, for for journalists, for a larger, larger audience. And this book is then also going to be um, designed uh, is also designed for a larger audience. And I may also say that we are of course very very uh, happy to have here now two more commentators on this project um, with Anna Maria and Marek, uh, who will also um, comment on on this. And maybe with that I conclude and. Um, uh, give over to Frederick or to John directly for, um, for these sort of conclusions from our project. Uh,
0: thank you very much, uh, uh, Andreas. And, 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 and now over to you, John. Uh, and as Andreas said, uh, uh, the idea of this was to highlight the sort of the policy relevance of these questions, which are far from academic. They are very real and here uh, here and now, and, and a real and present danger to the European security, uh, uh, as we all know, and the implication for the European security order, um, which John will speak about in, in, in a couple of seconds here. And we've also made sure that uh, all the reports also include policy recommendations to, to various audiences, which uh, might be interesting to follow up on. Please, John, what are your main findings
2: and conclusions? Thank you so much, Friedrich. I thought I'd talk a little bit about the reports first, and then we can go into the policy recommendations afterwards in the discussion. Um, I'd like to start emphasizing what um, Andreas uh, mentioned, that basically all reports are about the protracted conflicts in Eastern Europe in one way or another, including their wider policy implications, Um, and this also includes the human rights situation, which uh, is particularly severe in and around the non-government controlled areas of these states. Uh, And that's worth highlighting. This is a security issue. It's also a human rights issue. And human rights issues are security issues, uh, which we can get back to. I'd also like to point out that there are some differences between uh, these different protracted conflicts especially the one between Armenia and Azerbaijan is a bit of a separate case Uh, and I'd like to recommend you all to take a closer look at the individual reports to get deeper into the substance. But there are also some striking similarities um, and I'd like to focus on a common theme uh, in my introduction here and that is Russia. regards the conflict played out in Ukraine, um, but also uh, the ones in Georgia and Moldova, a key point uh, or finding is that they are very much about Russia, Russia's democracy problems, Russia's lack of respect for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of other states, and for their right to freely choose their security arrangements, including treaties of alliance. Actually, It's even about the right to self-defense, according to the UN Charter, one could argue. And what we have at hand are systematic violations of the commonly agreed rules, the so-called European Security Order, that is of international law and of fundamental OSCE principles and commitments. uh, As defined as in documents like the Helsinki Final Act and the Charter of Paris, Uh, Russia signed up to these. but violates them uh, and would like to renegotiate them. And as Fredrik pointed out, we're not talking about some local conflicts in some obscure part of the world here, uh, but about an instrumentalization of conflict and a systemic challenge to the European security order and to European security. Um, And we'll also see that there are consequences beyond the region itself. And I'd like to illustrate what I mean by saying a few words about Georgia and Moldova, um, two countries that should not be forgotten, even though very much is happening now around Ukraine, um, and that we will discuss. Um, Anyway, around the time of of the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, hostilities broke out in both Georgia and Moldova. And these hostilities, they clearly had something to do with intra-ethnic or intercultural tensions. Um, I believe it's fair to say this, um, and there are still some real issues relating to this that need to be dealt with. But, and here's the thing, these conflicts almost immediately acquired a wider geopolitical dimension as Russia and Russian military forces got involved at very early stages. And these forces, which had inherited a previously Soviet military presence. They provided active and probably decisive support to the insurrectionists in the so-called breakaway republics. And ever since, um, the Russian military presence has continued in both countries, in Georgia even more so since the war in 2008. Uh, And this um, continues despite the lack of host country consent. That is in violation of Georgia's and Moldova's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Meanwhile, Russia has also provided military, economic, and political support to the so-called breakaway republics, that is to alternative, illegal, and illegitimate structures. And Russia has also engaged in various other types of antagonistic behavior towards the legitimate authorities of Georgia and Moldova. And if it wasn't clear from the beginning, it has over time become obvious that Russia is instrumentalizing and perpetuating these conflicts to reach political goals. Uh, And for this, it has developed a whole toolbox with similar methods being applied in the two countries. And then later, from 2014 and onwards, also in Ukraine. And in Ukraine, Russia's responsibility and role as a conflict party is even more striking um, than in Moldova and Georgia. And there, the Russian violations of the European security order are also particularly grave, both as regards Crimea and as regards Eastern Donbass. And as we currently currently see, there's also a worrying risk of a military escalation with Russian demands for security guarantees from Washington and so on. And as for the methods, the reoccurring methods that I mentioned, um, uh, I already, Uh, exemplified by uh, the the Russian military forces um, that appear in different forms, including as so-called peacekeeping forces following ceasefire agreements that have been uh, brokered or rather dictated by Moscow. Other examples are hybrid measures such as the mass distribution of Russian passports, propaganda, economic punishment, and so on. It's also important to keep in mind that Russia instrumentalizes not only conflict, but also conflict resolution processes. Um, Through military force and Russian veto power in the UN Security Council and also within the OCE, Russia has been rather successful in shaping various processes um, to fit its narrative of these conflicts as something purely domestic. Um, And this means that the peace processes, the conflict resolution resolution processes have become part of the battlefields rather than uh, being the, the platforms for conflict resolutions um, that we would like. Um, it's of course relevant to ask what Russia is up to and what Russia wants to achieve through this behavior. Um, and I'll say a few things about that. Um, sometimes it's argued that the kremlin lacks uh, a strategic vision and i would actually disagree with this and argue that that this may seem to be the case if one assumes that the kremlin's priorities are what they uh, are what would be rational for the for the russian population for russia as a whole so to speak or according to our logic But if one looks at private rather than public interests, and if one takes the perspective of the Kremlin and its current inhabitants, and if one looks at their rhetoric and actions, then they clearly have um, another logic with both strategic objectives and a strategic vision. And these objectives are partly external to establish a sphere of influence over nearby states that should not enjoy full sovereignty, this is also what Putin is now saying publicly um, by demanding guarantees that certain European states should not be allowed to join NATO, for example. But the objective is also internal. It's about Russian domestic politics, since the Kremlin clearly wants to secure its own survival or security. It wants to prevent what it sees as a virus of democracy, human rights and the rule of law, including the possibility of so-called color revolutions, uh, which is something that the Kremlin sees as existential threats. And in this context, it's important to remember that Russia's external aggression uh, towards other states, it's paired with increasingly harsh repression within Russia. One may look at the actions taken against Navalny and his organization. Uh, One could also look at uh, what's going on uh, with Memorial uh, at the moment, um, and so on. And this important link between conditions within states and security between them is also exactly what the OSE's comprehensive security system is is all about. Uh, And ultimately, what this amounts to is a Russian desire to renegotiate uh, the normative European security order. Um, Moscow has signaled this several times. Uh, President Medvedev had a a so-called European security proposal, proposal. What Putin is doing now is the same thing. And I'll just say that at the end now, accepting this either de jure formally uh, or only, so to speak only de facto implicitly by being silent or uh, reaching some sort of tacit understanding uh, that would be contrary to what we have previously agreed. And I would argue it would also be very unlikely to bring stability. We need to keep our eye on the ball. um, That is restoring respect for the established rules. That must be the criterion. Let's not forget about accountability. And uh, let's be very careful with concessions regarding these rules. Um, First, uh, these would not necessarily be accepted by everyone in the affected states. Second, the Russian hunger would probably not be satisfied through any such compromises. If anything, the appetite may just be whetted, um, since the Kremlin would feel that its transgressions uh, are paying off. And third, um, Russia's antagonistic behavior would probably continue anyway, since since this is also about ideas and Russian domestic politics. Um, As I mentioned, open democratic societies with respect for human rights, the rule of law, and so on, even things like gender equality, equity, um, and sexual freedom, these things are also seen by the Kremlin as threats, Um, not only because of what these societies, open societies do, but also for what they represent. Um, And fourth, and and my last point, uh, the risk for instability elsewhere would probably also increase. Um, These ongoing violations, they are matters, matters not just for the countries directly concerned, but also for the rules-based international order in general. Um, Whatever Russia gets away with in Europe, other states may try elsewhere. Thank you.
0: Thank you, John. Um, And now over to anna Dünner, Duner, who is an analyst at the International Security Programme. Are we dealing with international security here?
3: Thank you very much. Thank you, Friedrich, for having me here and for invitation. Uh, and thank you, Andras and John, for a brilliant presentation and for all project, because it's ex- extremely important, uh, not only for our part of Europe, but all, I think that uh, also especially for our Western partners who are not, uh, maybe another way, who are lucky not to have uh, a common border with, uh, with Russia and uh, they don't have to tackle with um, such kind of stories in everyday life. So, uh, first of all, thank you very much for uh, paying attention to all of those um, protracted um, conflicts. And especially that you uh, stress that all of them are backed by Russia, because Russia has plenty of its own interests um, in maintaining those kinds of, uh, of conflicts. When we are thinking about uh, Moldova, Georgia, and Ukraine, it's very visible that there are three associated with the EU countries uh, when Russia uh, wants to interfere just to stop all of those processes um, of integration with the EU and probably also with with NATO, which will be like a nightmare, especially in, um, in Moscow. Moreover, uh, I will also add that uh, for Russia's perspective, um, the success story of all of those countries uh, also will be such kind of nightmare because it will uh, be uh, the best evidence uh, that in the post Soviet space, I'm nowadays excluding uh, the Baltic states, uh, that it will be uh, possible to gather um, a success, uh, success story. Um, and uh, it will be a very visible signal um, for uh, Russia society that uh, they can achieve more or less the same, is one issue. Second issue is that we also have to think about Russia way of thinking, about uh, all of the, those no imperial uh, ideology, something which we call, uh, which we know as uh, Ruski Mir, uh, when Russia tried to use rather um, hard power, not soft power, uh, to attract uh, countries in something which is uh, called by um, Moscow's elite like uh, the closest uh, neighborhood. Uh, we also have to um, think about uh, Russian point of, of view of this geopolitical uh, way of um, way of thinking about the vision of the world which is uh, divided uh, in this plenty of sphere of influence, uh, in which um, countries like the US for instance, cannot interfere in uh, in something which is uh, called Russian sphere of influence. Uh, And something which is very dangerous, especially from uh, Central European perspective, uh, is that in the middle of those sphere of influence, there are also uh, countries which belong to so-called gray zones, uh, which, should be from russian perspective uh, a buffer zone uh, buffer zone states and nowadays we also see this uh, in this russian state mfa statement in which uh, they are want wanting from nato that uh, in the eastern flank countries there should be uh, no military drills uh, and all kind of uh, military equipment should be uh, more or less withdraw because uh, all kinds of military equipment um, should be dangerous uh, dangerous uh, to um, Russia. Um, then we will have also to think about how those conflicts uh, will evaluate in in the future because uh, we rather don't have any doubts that they will be used by Russia in the future and not only them not only those protracted conflicts, uh, because we also think uh, about Belarus, which nowadays, fortunately for, for Belarus, doesn't have such kind of uh, protracted conflict with, uh, with the engagement of Russia, but it doesn't mean that it uh, won't be used, it will be. We also have to look at um, the human rights situation there, when we have like uh, almost 900 uh, political prisoners uh, still in, uh, in Belarusian prisons. Uh, and also uh, using migrants as a kind of uh, weapon, um, also violating human rights uh, by Belarusian regime. So we also will have to uh, to think of of that and that probably Russia will also try to use Belarus to engage it uh, in its protracted conflicts with Ukraine, especially um, in Donbas. Um, those those conflicts are, will be instrumental, instrumentalized and used by Russia in its way of uh, leading diplomacy, uh, something which Mark Galotti called heavy metal diplomacy. But uh, definitely uh, Russia wants to be perceived as a superpower, um, some, someone who is able to solve the conflicts, but what a surprise, the conflict which were the conflicts which were artificially created by, um, by them. Um, what, one thing, uh, maybe not one thing, uh, definitely one thing more uh, is that uh, all of those uh, way of um, policy uh, it's also a test for Western unity, uh, a test for the EU and, uh, and NATO. Um, the more that now and also for CS as, uh, as a security organization, uh, what, think, what, what is interesting, Russia mentioned plenty of times uh, OSCE uh, in its statement, uh, but just only uh, those points about uh, security, uh, they said nothing about human rights, which, which are one of the main pillars, if not the main one uh in uh, in the OSC. Um so um just to um to sum up definitely Russia will um, use all kinds of weaknesses from western uh, side, and moreover, we also have to think about something which to some extent, is connected with protracted conflicts. I mean, all of those uh, hybrid tools and uh, hybrid issue because they were uh, tested, they were practiced, especially in uh, these these areas, these countries of protracted conflicts, uh, like information warfare with Ukraine, uh, like um, uh, using... um, the possibility uh, to stop um, shifting hydrocarbons to Ukraine or to Georgia, and uh, plenty of other issues connected with attacking uh, critical infrastructure, uh, with interfering in political system, uh, when uh, with economic uh, blackmailing, and so forth, and so on. That we as Western country we- countries probably will also have to um, tackle with such kind of um, of behaving uh, and threats uh, coming directly from Russia. So I think that uh, when we are learning um, those uh, protracted conflicts, we also have to think uh, about all those uh, which we nowadays are called hybrid threats and think about uh, the Western European countries and the security of the EU and NATO. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Anna Maria. And now over to Marek Menkishak, head of the Russian Department at the Center for Eastern Studies. Thank you. Marek, please.
4: Thank you very much. Good afternoon to all of you. I'm very privileged to participate in this event. Uh, My problem actually is that after reading the final report, I cannot find anything I disagree with. Uh, So let me uh, first uh, tackle several points Uh, that uh, I would like to underline. uh, And I think they are actually to some extent within the report. Uh, One thing I like very much uh, uh, with the the report is that there is uh, an ambiguous um, uh, um, sort of assessment of of Russia's role which is pretty much uh, negative uh, uh, of, for, for, the, for the security situation. Russia is obviously a challenge, which is probably an understatement for, for many uh, uh, OSC members. Russia is basically a threat for security. Uh, and it is very important to stress that there is no symmetry here because it's quite often that we uh, approaching this with some artificial symmetries, basically blaming two sides, Russia and the West, actually conflicting with each other. Um, and actually, uh, and that, that we also, we need to uh, to respond to, to that by uh, uh, compromises on, on, on both sides. Uh, I don't think I disagree with that. I, I don't think there is a symmetry. Uh, what Russia has done uh, to uh, European security for the couple of last couple of years cannot be matched by any uh, Western policies, any NATO policies, any EU policies and any policies of of Russia's neighbors. Um, Second point is that it is very important rightly to stress Uh, and huge impact of the so-called protracted conflicts on the uh, overall security beyond the regions. Um, It is very much important. Uh, So we cannot and we shouldn't actually think uh, that it is possible to compartmentalize relations uh, with Russia uh, actually without any uh, uh, any uh, uh, need to uh, to find uh, solutions to those protected conflicts it is not possible to bypass them basically in relations with russia uh, the third point uh, is that it is very rightly and importantly to stress the interlink between uh, uh, Russia's foreign security policy and Russia's internal developments. These are closely interlinked. uh, And the fact that Russia as a state uh, is increasingly authoritarian, uh, it's actually morphing itself into a a, a strong dictatorship um, with some totalitarian ambitions actually very strongly um, uh, uh, increases the the aggressive nature of Russia's foreign security policy. And it is also important because uh, we should not expect uh, those phenomena to change in a foreseeable future. As long as the current system of government, as the current regime, both in terms of institutions and personnel exist in Russia, we should not have hopes that uh, there will be uh, any substantial change to, to Russia's modus operandi, um, referring to uh, European security. Another uh, important element is that, um, that we should, uh, in responding to the Russia's challenge, uh, we should uh, tackle the basics. Return to the basics, to the basic principles, uh, and we should not allow actually to think uh, that uh, certain uh, demands, which are posed by Russia, uh, which are in in which are in direct contravene to a basic principles of the OSCE, uh, are legitimate because there is a certain tendency that, well, we should discuss the, the, the Russian demands would, however they are uh, uh, just automatically. Uh, I don't think so. Um, uh, it is the question of uh, legitimacy of, of certain Russian demands. And finally, uh, it is uh, the, the, the report uh, and the issues which are raised uh, are very topical. Uh, they are very topical because we currently facing the situation in which Russia poses us with a sort of an ultimatum, actually, threatening use of force. Uh, this is uh, actually uh, sometimes indirect, but it is very uh, real, a threat uh, of using force by Russia, which exists. Uh, by itself also contravenes the the basic principles of of the OSCE. And finally, uh, in terms of recommendations, uh, I also like uh, the the principle approach to to those recommendations. So first of all, uh, kind of um, refusal of accepting certain uh, notions of the uh, de, de facto spheres of influence, which actually Russia demands uh, uh, as 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 its goal, it is impossible to 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 agree to that. Uh, it is important to think about possible uh, sanction regimes, the closing loopholes in existing sanction regimes, to increase application of new instruments of sanctions, including relating to the human rights. Uh, and also to preemptively communicate uh, substantial economic sanctions whenever uh, uh, the the further aggression, especially towards Ukraine recently, uh, is to be uh, uh, executed by Russia. But also uh, understanding that, uh, of course, the dialogue is, is needed with Russia and we cannot refuse to have a dialogue with Russia and it should be continued uh, on uh, the existing formats. So we have uh, OSC, we have a NATO-Russia Council, we have US-Russia dialogue, we have a Normandy format. We have all these formats uh, and there is actually no need to, uh, to design anything uh, uh, out of the blue uh, uh, in relation to, uh, uh, to dialogue with Russia. Uh, I would like to uh, point out just to the two small uh, cases, uh, uh, the two elements, which I think we uh, should be uh, explore uh, in more depth. One is the the thing that we should return to a discussion about the peacekeeping operation in Donbas. Um, If we really think uh, about uh, making a progress in uh, uh, fulfillment of the Minsk agreements, however uh, imperfect they are, Uh, there is no other way actually than to address the basic security deficit. And the only way actually to uh, have a chance to uh, develop the political track which Russia demands uh, uh, within the Minsk format is actually to uh, uh, agree upon the uh, uh, interim period which would uh, introduce a basic security, but it is only possible with the participation of UN or RAC mandated and and, uh, uh, administered uh, uh, fully fledged peacekeeping uh, operation within the region. So that's one point. And the second point, we have to reinforce our proposals some of them, for example, has been presented uh, to Russia by NATO to uh, making uh, an overall of the OSCE Vienna document uh, about the uh, uh, security uh, uh, confidence and security building measures. We have to understand that certain proposals, a lot of proposals has been refused by Moscow but uh, we should uh, reinforce them and we should make them public, publicly visible. The part of the problem, I think, is that some of our proposals, some of our initiatives are not enough uh, communicated to the public. We need more strategic communication, uh, which also uh, uh, could uh, uh, influence the... the uh, uh, our dialogue with Russia. And I will stop that and uh, possibly uh, developing some issues and further discussion. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Marek, and uh, and thank you especially for for your last two very concrete ideas and and and, and, and proposals here. Uh, the, uh, it has been mentioned here that the OEC is um, is a main actor in a forum uh, in, in in many of these aspects it could be argued that the OEC has three main assets. <clears throat> the first one, it's um, a normative uh, a asset. The O.C. is the normative base for the European security order. Uh, hence the final act, Paris Charter, has been mentioned, but also a whole series of other commitments, which have all been decided by consensus, and including uh, by Russia. The second asset is the, the O.C. as a dialogue platform, Uh, uh, This is an organisation, the world's largest uh, regional security organisation which meets regularly uh, uh, and offers a platform for dialogue between the participating states. And the third asset is its toolbox. Uh, it, it, they, they have, We have the institutions, autonomous institutions dealing, for instance, with democracy, institutions of democracy and human rights, uh, freedom of media. Um, but we also have uh, some of these military uh, confidence uh, and security building measures that Mark mentioned, like the Vienna document. And it can also be noted that the Vienna document, which should allow uh, observation by, by foreign military observers uh, when there is military exercises, activities exceeding 13,000 uh, 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 men, uh, defined in a, uh, in, in, in a certain way, uh, uh, it should be allowed. No Russian military exercises so far has been organized or communicated in such a way that they have been observed under the, 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 the Vienna document. Uh, but my question here is there... How do we deal with the situation here uh, uh, when OSCE is in charge uh, of of, of these conflicts and the the conflict uh, negotiations and and, and, um, uh, the mechanisms and the formats? Uh, But it's also uh, uh, here the aggressor and the violator and how do we deal with this in a consensus-based organization? Is there tensions between uh, the normative value of the OSCE upholding uh, these principles and commitments and the uh, pragmatic need to act uh, to have a special monitoring mission uh, or to have dialogue and 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 if so how do we deal with this how do we strike a balance uh, 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 between these between dialogue and accountability um, as it were um, any thoughts on that
2: John please Thanks. Uh, I'd like to start with picking up something that uh, uh, that was mentioned by uh, Anna-Maria, uh, namely unity. And I think that really needs to be stressed here um, in terms of sticking together. Uh, the EU and NATO... Within the EU, of course, we need to stick together. Um, We need to keep the transatlantic uh, link strong. We need to also work together with like-minded allies and partners, uh, the UK, Canada, Norway, Switzerland, and so on and so forth. Um, If we don't do that, we're almost doomed already from the beginning. Uh, We will then be divided on purpose uh, and played out against each other. And I think this is particularly important to stress in times like this when we have a new German government. Um, Berlin has a big responsibility to keep the EU together, uh, together with France, where we have presidential elections coming up next year. This will be very important. Um, I'm happy um, that um, Foreign Minister Baerbock and uh, Chancellor Scholz have already visited Warsaw. Um, I think it's important to have Poland on board on on this uh, in the Weimar format or or somehow else. Um, There are many reasons for this. Um, Poland borders Ukraine, Poland borders Belarus. um, uh, In both countries, uh, what happens affects Poland. Um, And there's also a link between developments in Belarus and what Russia is doing towards Ukraine. And then, of course, next year, Poland will be uh, chairing the OSCE. So there are all kinds of reasons to keep uh, Poland on board. Um, And I'd like to see more of that in the transatlantic dimension as well, actually. Um, We've seen in the last few days and uh, weeks sort of coordination between Washington and European cities. I think... Uh, There are many reasons, the ones I just mentioned, that that Warsaw should have been included there as well. Uh, The EU as well, uh, I think, would would have been appropriate. I hope we will see that uh, going ahead. Um, And then, of course, unity also with the affected countries. Um, Nothing about them without them, it's sometimes said. Uh, And, of course, everything needs to be very closely coordinated with Kiev, Tbilisi, uh, Chichen uh, and so on. Uh, so that's one spontaneous point. And I think also just what we do outside of the OSCE also matters within the OCE. Uh, to think that we can solve things only within the OECE without considering sanctions, for example, that are then decided upon outside of the OSE, that that would be naive. There are also other instruments outside of the OSCE that we also need to consider uh, to, to reinforce what happens within the OSCE, but I'll let the others in. Thank you. Uh, uh, Marek and Anna-Maria, I mean, what Poland is assumed to,
0: to assume the uh, uh, chairpersonship of the OSCE, what, what, what are the recommendations that you would give in, in Warsaw to your government and your foreign ministry on this? And What, what, it, what is the room for maneuver for, for an OSCE uh, um, chairpersonship? Anyone wants to comment on that? Anna-Maria?
3: So maybe I I will start, because um, nevertheless, it's a very uh, tough question and uh, difficult recommendation. Of course, uh, as I'm not mistaken, Poland will focus on uh, SMM mission in Donbass and in situation in Ukraine, um, because as... John mentioned before, it's not about Ukraine, it's about whole region and probably not only the whole region, but um, security and transatlantic world as, as such. Uh, it's uh, one issue. Uh, second issue is, of course, uh, also using OSCE mechanism in other places when protracted conflicts are ongoing, especially in Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, and also in um, Moldova and in Transnistria which is also very important because uh, we are seeing how Russia is uh, involved uh, on those those conflicts and how Russia is trying to use uh, them for its um, political aims, especially in uh, international um, area. So, but on the other hand, it will be extremely uh, difficult uh, to talk about uh, such kind of issues uh, within OSCE uh, as you, Fredrik, mentioned, consensus is needed here. So uh, it's not only Russia who can block uh, any kind of um, activities uh, any kind of uh, solving problems, but also Belarus, uh, who is also among uh, OSC countries, uh, who will act uh, in a pair with uh, with uh, Russia. Uh, we also have to um, think about cooperation with uh, other OSE countries like, for instance, Kazakhstan, uh, which wasn't mentioned and which has its own interest. And um, to be very honest, uh, not uh, in 100% um, connected with uh, Russian aims. Um, so uh, very difficult, uh, very difficult um, year that uh, it's uh, among us. With plenty of um, uh, with plenty of um, how to say traps, but also I think that Marek was totally right that we have to speak more publicly publicly about all of those proposals uh, connected with Vienna Document, which is last uh, in which Russia is officially engaged because uh, Russia withdrew uh, its engagement from uh, Open Sky Treaty and um, CFE Treaty. Uh, which um, which uh, deteriorates uh, the security instruments uh, in, uh, in the past. Um, and also to stress that we have security architecture which uh, was established in the 90s. Uh, and um, we don't have to think about another of uh, architecture, just maybe to return uh, to all of those uh, which was uh, signed. Uh, between then uh, USSR, now Russia and and other other countries uh, about, for instance, uh, measures of uh, of control. Um, So definitely uh, we also have to be more uh, visible uh, in uh, presenting our proposals, for instance, in regards to reforming um, Vienna document, which to some extent also is uh, an answer even I will say that pre-answer of uh, Russian demands, because uh, Russian MFA uh, said about um, this, um, uh, that uh, we have to um, think about warships and uh, war aircrafts um, and uh, about this um, dangerous um, uh, incidents uh and one of um, and that we should avoid that that's kind of uh, incidents. and uh, one of the proposals of this reforming Vienna you know, document is just to uh to do so and for instance uh to um stop flying uh, without um transponders on so that's uh, that's our also that's our proposals and i think that uh, in poland and should should be more active probably also in uh, in public
0: Thank you. And, uh, Marek, you already mentioned uh, two concrete proposals um, uh, on, on the peacekeeping uh, uh, operations in Donbass and also on, on, on the military confidence building. But uh, are, are there other how how, how do you assess uh, and, and how would you advise the Polish um, the Minister of Foreign Affairs now, assuming the the what, what, how, how can we use or how can the OEC be, be used here, so to say? Or, or, or is it helpful, or, or do we have to look for other instruments?
4: Well, uh, I would advise certainly that uh, we should keep our uh, uh, ambitions and hopes quite low uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, we all witnessed uh, in, in, in recent years that uh, Russia has been playing uh, very non-constructive uh, um, role within the OSCE, basically blocking a lot, paralyzing partly uh, some OSCE activity, including in relation to uh, monitoring missions. Uh, We have to be aware of that. Uh, And we have to be aware of that the the nature of the OSCE as a basically consensus-based broadly uh, broad uh, uh, membership uh, structure creates uh, serious uh, difficulties uh, in overcoming the the deadlocks uh, which are, which are appearing so the the right approach uh, and I think uh, the the polish government fully uh, realizes that is a small steps uh, approach uh, and also uh, those actual elements I mentioned, uh, both the Vienna document discussion and the uh, discussion about potential uh, 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 operations uh, with the OSCE role, uh, including in, in Donbass, uh, are potentially, possibly, uh, the ways to, 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 to uh, create a room for progress uh, in that respect. Without, without possibly uh, putting too much, uh, too much hopes, because we understand that there are some uh, very strict Russian positions which are very much uh, unhelpful in terms of possible, uh, uh, if effective, uh, uh, progress uh, in that respect. Uh, but I also would like to touch upon the the the, the question which appeared uh, within the chat and uh, which are related to a dialogue uh, platforms uh, also with Russia. So I mentioned Normandy format not because uh, I'm especially fond of it and especially uh, recognizing the, the effectiveness of, of this. Uh, I, my intention was to, to uh, suggest that we have already plenty of existing formats to discuss with Russia. And actually, we have to be cautious uh, in designing, uh, you know, new series of, of some uh, avenues of discussion. For example, uh, some people may suggest that the uh, the current consultation uh, format between the U.S. and uh, several major allies within Europe are probably the, the the possible form new format for for discussion with Russia. Uh, I would be very much urging against that uh, because uh, we have to understand that uh, it is impossible to really tackle the serious issues of European security and serious matters of Ukraine and Ukraine relations uh, with Russia and conflict in Donbas without participation of uh, the eastern flank, uh, NATO eastern flank countries and Ukraine itself. So this is uh, this is very, uh, I think, important uh, point I would like to make. Uh, the second element to this is that uh, there has been, of course, talks uh, about possible merger of two tracks uh, existing on Donbas which is a uh, Normandy format and U.S.-Russia uh, uh, bilateral dialogue. Uh, I think that can be discussed. Uh, the, definitely, I think Ukraine would welcome the U.S. participation in Normandy talks. And I understand that even the, even Russia formally, at least, has not uh, 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 um, has not denied uh, such possibility. Uh, It is the matter of of discussion, Um, but it is extremely important actually not to try bypass uh, Ukraine in any format of of this kind of negotiations, because we have to uh, understand there is a full uh, political um, subjectivity of Ukraine in the process. We cannot and we shouldn't at any time uh, Suggests that, that that there is uh, there is a possibility of uh, of of a kind of limited sovereignty of Ukraine. This being discussed, uh, there is no such uh, issue. It shouldn't be, uh, and uh, this is a matter of principle uh, in terms of uh, in terms of approach to uh, this particular uh, issue.
0: Thank you. Picking up uh, on exactly this, this topic um, uh, question, I mean, it's sometimes uh, by some uh, uh, stated in the discussion that um, that Russia's goals and aims and, and Kremlin's and Putin's goals and aims are somewhat mysterious and uh, they are difficult to understand and so forth, uh, whether o- others, uh, including myself, would argue uh, they are very clearly stated. And they have been so since the Medvedev initiative uh, 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 and there has been also follow up discussion formats. Uh, 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 we had the core within the OSCE, there was the COFO process, there was the Helsinki Plus 40, there was the panel of eminent uh, 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 persons. Uh, uh, and now, uh, again, uh, a new uh, formulation of this was then made on, on the end of last week on, on by the Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs on their homepage where they also, uh, in the English translation, said that Russia will shortly present draft international legal documents in the indicated areas to launch talks in respective formats. Um, so uh, the aims, uh, Russians' aims and goals uh, seem to be uh, clear and they've also been moving forward, not at least during the last months, so to say, in relationship in, in, to Ukraine. And we and, and we don't only have a sort of military escalation, but we also have a sort of political escalation and, and in terms of, of, of the uh, Russian demands. And as you pointed out, Marek, uh, once you start to toy with these ideas of, of limited sovereignty, that uh, 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 you, you actually have established spheres and, 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 uh, of, of interest and influence, uh, that some countries are more sovereign than others and, 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 uh, and, and, and larger military capable uh, great powers, uh, have the right or the veto uh, on, on foreign and security policy uh, and also domestic policy issues of, of other countries. And once, of course, you have established uh, this principle or legitimized this, this aberration from from the current order, uh, 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 then, then we have undermined this order. Uh, but the question is, why now? Why is this Russian escalation coming now towards uh, Ukraine? Uh, which is, as we have seen by these demands, this is much more about Ukraine. Uh, uh, it, 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 it is about uh, 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 veto uh, on 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 uh, various countries. Uh, um, defense capabilities on their uh, right to choose uh, their own security and foreign and security policy arrangements, uh, which is a key principle of the of the Paris Charter. But why why is this going on right now, and why with such intensity? How can we understand that? Any comments on that, Anna Maria? Please.
3: Great. Thank you, Friedrich. I think that. Uh... There are plenty of answers to your to your question and we can divide it, uh, them into two box. Uh, one box, which is connected with internal situation in Russia and second box, which is connected with um, external policy of uh, these countries. So starting with the first one, uh, we have to um, think about um, decreasing popularity of uh, Vladimir Putin. Last uh, Labada survey um, just shown that it's like 31 or 35%, if I'm not mistaken, which is uh, the lowest results uh, on the history uh, of um, making surveys about the popularity of uh, Vladimir Putin. So to some extent, uh, Kremlin's elites are seeking um, any possibilities uh, to maybe not to grab um, the social popularity, uh, but uh, to um, focus um, uh, so society attention uh, to some to some other issue. Um, the second thing which is uh, connected uh, with uh, with that, it's a question of uh, maintaining um, uh, the high readiness of uh, Russian army and Russian armed forces. Uh, and that's why they're organizing plenty of those kind of uh, troops uh, shifting. Uh, and they're keeping um, the military forces uh, in very high level of readiness. Um, so, and that's why it's uh, it's also uh, um, so huge uh, engagement uh, in uh, from from Russian side. And um, jumping to this uh, the second box uh, about external um, situation, we have a situation in which Russia is trying to. Uh, undermine also the deteriorating pos- position of uh, President Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine, is trying to uh, use all kinds of weaknesses of, uh, of uh, this country is one issue. Second issue is of course about testing the new um, American administration because the tension started in April this year, just a few months after Joe Biden started to, uh, to be a president, the president. Uh, So it's um, the second issue. Third issue is of course connected with elections in Germany. uh, And nowadays the situation connected with uh, Nord Stream uh, 2. Also um, next year election in France was mentioned. So I think that it's also a kind of testing. And last last but not least, we we have to think about uh, internal situation in NATO, about our uh, internal discussion about new strategic concept, uh, that we will have to face um, the election of new uh, SecGen in the middle of uh, next year. So all of those Russia is trying to to use. And one thing uh, to add, it's also trying to use uh, increasing um, dependence of Belarus um, from, from itself. So here we have the whole spectrum of uh, of answers why it's happening now.
0: Thank you, Anna Maria, for a very uh, clearly structured uh, uh, and exhaustive answer. Andreas, please additions to this.
1: Yes, I want to just add to what Anna Ma- Maria said. This uh, domestic um, uh, aspect. Uh, the frightening thing here is that. Uh, the last two large such escalations in 2008 and 2014, they both led then to a rise of Putin's popularity, to a rise of anti-Westernism, anti-Americanism, also to a, um, to a lowering of the popularity, the traditionally high popularity of the European Union. And, and the lessons that sort of Putin is learning from these earlier uh, armed conflicts is that it's good domestically. And it's also, in terms of foreign policy, not particularly problematic, because after the 2008 Russian-Georgian war, we had actually um, uh, an improvement of the uh, relations between Russia and the West. We had the reset policy of the U.S. We had the modernization uh, partnership, uh, first from Germany and then from the entire EU towards Russia. So in a way, you were actually you got a prize for the uh, transgression and for the non-fulfillment also of the so-called Sarkozy plan, the um, Russian-Georgian ceasefire agreement. And then there's also, I think, the inner Ukrainian factor in that until 2019, I guess Putin was waiting for a new president after the hawkish um, Poroshenko and then the new president came and indeed there were there were certain signs that the new president would actually be more conciliatory towards uh, russia uh, there was then for instance again the discussion about the steinmeier formula but over the over the months um, it turned out actually that zelensky is as hawkish and in some in some regards even more hawkish than poroshenko and that he for instance closed the um, the pro russian uh, uh, the TV channels linked to uh, Viktor Medvedchuk, uh, actually a sort of re- relative of of Putin, um, and uh, that uh, it, it, it did not actually the change of the uh, leadership in in Ukraine improve the relations, and that there is so to say no immediate victory to be obtained by Putin via. Um, sort of this uh, Russian-Ukrainian diplomatic uh, or political confrontation, but only through through the West that is now sort of being asked to uh, renounce its earlier obligations uh, towards Ukraine or through military escalation. So I think, you know, Putin is again looking for a victory like in 2008 and 2014. It doesn't have to be a military victory necessarily. But it should be certainly some victory, and that is also then, um, I think, putting the West in a very difficult situation, uh, because um, if you want to prevent war, we, you have to um, you have to sort of uh, give uh, Putin um, at least uh, an opportunity to sa- to save his face, to give him some sort of victory. But that should be then a victory, preferably not uh, at the expense of Ukraine. So that is, I think, the dilemma that the West is now uh, is now in. Thank
0: you Marek
4: Thank you um, I fully agree with my uh, colleagues uh, uh, there are several uh, there are several elements to, to to this situation I believe so on one hand uh, Russia is not accepting status quo Russia is not accepting status quo in Ukraine Russia is not accepting status quo in European security and uh, those hopes, and those uh, uh, attempts Russia has made uh, in both cases has failed. Uh, there is a deadlock in Donbas which uh, Russia could not overcome. Uh, the, the The pressure uh, for Ukraine has not uh, produced uh, results uh, welcomed by Russia. Uh, there is increasing cooperation between Ukraine and the West uh, uh, and the, the, the small steps in the process of integration. This is directly against the Russian interests. Um, uh, we have uh, the in- presence, in- slowly increasing presence uh, of NATO in the eastern flank. We have a discussion about new strategic concept and new operational plans by, by NATO, which actually recognizes Russia as a, as a, as a threat. Uh, Russia tries to challenge that, Russia tries to overcome that, Russia tries to uh, change the dynamics. Uh, the second part, uh, the second element is the uh, is a certain window of opportunity Russia sees in my perception. And there are, again, several elements to those. One is the energy crisis in Europe, uh, the hike of prices, which both uh, uh, makes Russia more bold, uh, and makes Russia thinks that it can survive uh, possible sanction response by the West through the building uh, huge reserves, which Russia is doing now, uh, currently. Uh, but also it, uh, it, in Russian perception, this crisis makes uh, more difficult, especially for Europe to respond to, to, to the Russian challenge. And also we have a political dynamic, which is uh, very uh, interesting and which Russia very much monitors. So the new government in Germany and uh, kind of perceived uh, maybe relative weakness of of, of Germany currently, presidential campaign in France, and last but not least, uh, new Biden administration increasingly focused on China. Uh, and uh, preoccupied with with the Asia Pacific. Uh, So in in that respect, I believe Russians uh, believe that there is this window of opportunity for them and they have to act now, uh, before it will be too late, before uh, uh, the situation uh, will be much more worse uh, for the Russian uh, interests. And before the the long-term trends, we will make Russia even more weaker than it is uh, now.
0: Thank you, Mari. And John, uh, quickly, uh, and then we will go to the final round of questions.
2: Yes, very shortly. I can't add any more reasons uh, than the others just said. That was very exhaustive. But I just wanted to stress how serious and worrying the Russian rhetoric is as well. Uh, with Putin comparing the situation in Eastern Donbass to a genocide, which is a word that we also heard in 2008 to justify the Russian military intervention in Georgia. Uh, Who knows what the potential military goals would be uh, for Russia, but it can't be excluded that there are such as well and that we will once again be taken by surprise. And I think linking this to Marek's idea of a, a peacekeeping operation. I mean, if there are such serious allegations uh, being put forward, uh, the response should be to um, demand free access for the special monitoring mission of the OSCE all, uh, uh, all over Ukraine's territory. It, it could also justify a proper UN-mandated peacekeeping operation that would also then have a mandate to cover the whole of the territory not just some sort of reinforced uh, division of eastern donbass uh, from the rest of, of the country thank you
0: thank you we have slightly less than 10 minutes left of this webinar uh, we have uh, some more questions here from the audience um, and and one that marek uh, partly touched upon from Olga sokolova um, uh, and it's uh, about the dialogue with Russia uh, how useful do you think the existing channels are Norman deformants etc and uh, looking at where Europe stands now doesn't it look like continuous dialogue with Russia uh, 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 by means of existing channels approaches is not really functioning and uh, how can we evaluate the trustworthiness of the Russian go- government as a negotiation party um, uh, 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 and also uh, 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 since it has violated uh, um, in, in its promises and international agreements uh, um, earlier. And, and would this uh, situation merit a tougher reaction from the EU? Uh, we have another question from Alessia Ponomarenko um, who is about uh, the uh, possibility, the legal legal ways uh, of recognising the war in Donbass as an international armed conflict with Russia as a belligerent party under international humanitarian law, and that this would open up for, for uh, uh, also better protection of, 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 of human rights and, and humanitarian issues, such as prisoners of war, investigate war crimes, and so forth. Uh, and I can just also say that our last report that will be published later on this week will exactly touch upon these issues, uh, the complicates com- uh, complexities of international law Uh, uh, and so forth. And then we have a third question uh, about the role. What can the role of civil society be in situations like this? And civil society is also having limited resources. What should the civil society focus on? And I suggest that with these questions and the previous questions we've had here, uh, that we now go for a final round of comments from our panellists. Uh, and you are feel to free to uh, touch on any of these questions or any other of the points that were made in the discussion so far. And I suggest then that maybe we this time go in reverse order, uh, which means and that you would have uh, approximately one minute each. Marek, uh, what are your last words in this discussion?
4: Thank you very much, Frederick. Um, uh, I, I would not repeat what I've already said uh, in response to the uh, issue of Normandy format. My point basically is that we should not try to reinvent the wheel. Um, we have abundance of, of format. There is no no necessity actually to find this many new ones, um, and we have to basically try to uh, to maybe add some. Uh, uh, initiatives uh, to, to these, and I mentioned the the, the two. I mentioned the, the peacekeeping. Uh, actually, those are related to the second question. Uh, it is about the, how we should uh, trust the the, the Russia. Uh, well, we have to tr- try try Russia. I mean, we have to test Russia. So uh, if Russia genuinely has uh, uh, a, a goodwill and uh, seeking r- risk reduction and uh, seeking uh, kind of avoiding conflict and finding uh, a political solutions, the both uh, peacekeeping um, uh, operation, which I uh, would like to remind you already been uh, extensively discussed especially between US and Russia before, uh, and uh, the issue of Vienna uh, document uh, uh, um, uh, reform and enhancement actually are perfect uh, uh, as, as a test cases uh, posed uh, to, to Russia. This is the way uh, we first uh, underline that we are constructive in our, in our approach. Uh, we are forthcoming. And uh, actually, we, we are putting the ball on the, on the Russia's court. Uh, it, it is for Russia, actually, to, to prove that it is genuinely constructive in its approach. Thank you. Anna Maria, please.
3: OK, I'll try to be extremely short. So starting with the question of international law, uh, nowadays, definitely, we have a problem with defining status between uh, peace and war. Uh, and we have problem, uh, pro- such kind of problem with Ukraine because uh, it's Ukraine uh, who should as a first country um, perceived uh, that it's in a state of war with uh, with Russia, which will change maybe not everything, but plenty of uh, issues over there uh, because of plenty of uh, political and also um, social reasons. Uh, the authorities in Kiev. Um, uh, didn't do so, but still uh, we think to think about other, uh, our uh, uh, issues within the EU and within, uh, within NATO, uh, to what extent and when we have to respond in everything which is in between and in everything which we called uh, hybrid uh, threats and hybrid uh, warfare tools, because it will be also important to us to know when and to what extent we should uh, react on that. And second uh, question about uh, civil society, it could be engaged in every kind of protracted, pro, uh, protracted conflicts. Uh, we um, uh, spoke about it uh, during some side events uh, on, on, uh, during the OSCE uh, summit in uh, Stockholm um, almost two weeks ago. And definitely civil society can be used in preventing conflict uh, as a part of observing and helping observing commissions. Uh, observing and moreover in um, peace building. I will stop here because it's a very huge um, issue for the discussion, but definitely there is a huge importance of uh, civil society and uh, NGOs uh, in this, uh, this part of the world and in prot- 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 protracted conflicts. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Anna-Maria, and and I I think the the engagement and role of civil society is worth um, a a webinar and reports uh, um, in in its own, so
2: to say. Uh, So, John. Thanks. Uh, Well, clearly we need uh, communication communication channels with Russia, um, and I wouldn't propose creating any new ones uh, here on the spot, but... It's important to remember that some of these formats for different conflict resolution uh, processes uh, are not reflecting realities. Russia uh, gets to play a mediator or facilitator or participate in some undefined role. We need to be clear about uh, who the conflict parties are, where responsibility lies, and we must avoid letting Russia uh, set the agenda. Uh, Russia has been very clear what it thinks about the Normandy format by publishing correspondence, uh, confidential uh, diplomatic correspondence with Berlin and Paris. Uh, And now we have a typical problem of Russia creating a problem uh, and then demanding uh, concessions uh, from us in order to to solve that problem. a bit like the the mafia does in in certain films. And we need to stop playing along with that. Now we have a discussion about the concessions, accommodation of Russia, and so on and so forth. Uh, We should go back to the the fundamental principles and commitments uh, that we have agreed upon within the OCE, uh, the ones that exist in international law, uh, the, the problem is not the rule book. book. It's that Russia violates these rules. Uh, we can also look at the Minsk agreements. When we do that, we tend to look at things like local elections in eastern Ukraine, special status for Donbass, and so on and so forth, uh, and forget uh, about points affecting Russia and these illegal structures in eastern Ukraine. Uh, there are very very clear points in these agreements about the removal of unlawful military formations and military hardware, uh, about the withdrawal of all foreign armed formations, disarmament of all illegal groups. When was the last time you heard uh, a Western politician uh, stress this point of the Minsk Agreement? So uh, let's back that dialogue up with the right messages and with other measures. It could be things like security and defense support to Ukraine. Ukraine has the right to self-defense, according to the UN Charter. Uh, They have the right to ask for assistance, and we have the right to deliver that assistance. Uh, Let's consider that. And we should also, of course, continue long term with our support for Ukraine and other affected countries uh, to promote their Um, democratic and uh, economic development in general. Thank you. Thank you. Andreas?
1: Yeah, we've raised already the issues of the international organizations and the formats. And um, I would agree here with uh, John Saha's conclusions that often then these formats become a problem in itself. Still, sometimes there are um, issues, uh, there are certain initiatives that then actually still oddly in a way you could say produce useful results like the special monitoring mission that is accumulating now a huge um, amount of data that will be certainly used in the future for research and also perhaps for legal affairs. The European Court on Human Rights is still producing um, decisions that are uh, are, use, are useful for, uh, for the issues that we are discussing here well the un commissioner on human rights has actually uh, published also on the for instance the isolatia torture prison in donetsk um, and these are of course all organizations where russia is present and oddly uh, because russia wants to be part of these international structures it wants to be seen as a great power and is, even as a european power uh, sometimes uh, these organizations can produce um, useful results but often we will have to resort back then because russia can can uh, then um, a boycott, sort of, or sabotage, sort of the work of these organizations. Two coalitions of the willing. We have now the Lublin Triangle in place. There are other, p- perhaps, initiatives where Poland is the part, which could be extended to countries like Ukraine, like the three seas initiatives, or perhaps even the Bucharest Nine group. And so we we need to be here very flexible in terms of the organizations and formats and. Um, and initiatives that uh, that can be that can be used, and maybe in conclusion, I just want to mention Crimea. I think crimea is is very important is the sort of a looming issue behind here because I think the presidency of Putin, in his view, is very much uh, determined by the annexation of Crimea. Now it turns out that the sort of um, previous rule that imperial customary law goes before international law, as we saw with Transnistria. Abkhazia, the Tsrinvali region, is not working out with Crimea. There's now the Crimea platform. The Western countries are not agreeing to this. We have the, um, each year we have a resolution of the UN on, on Crimea. And there are also problems with Crimea, like the freshwater supply. And um, my feeling is that what we are observing now here is a, is a big operation in, in the end to secure Crimea. Yeah? And that sort of to get to some sort of deal where then Crimea could, be, could remain a part of, of Russia.
0: Thank you, Andreas. Um, and uh, also on the uh, uh, latter, uh, the issues here that was mentioned here on uh, on 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 Eastern Europe and Ukraine, uh, I just like to remind um, our viewers that we have a report published uh, recently. Uh, and also webinar last week, which can be viewed on the UI Facebook um, and should be available on the homepage uh, uh, soon, about realising the vision of a Europe whole, free and at peace, a new strategic approach to the eastern neighbourhood. The report is authored by Andreas Umland and Hugo von Essen at the Stockholm Centre for Eastern European Studies. With these words, uh, a very warm thanks to all our panellists and especially our cooperation partners, uh, Anna-Maria Diner from PISM in Warsaw and Marek Minkischak from the OSW uh, also in Warsaw. And we hope to stay in contact uh, on this topic and other topics also during uh, next year. But it was really great to do this uh, webinar uh, discussion in cooperation with you. Uh, and also a special thank to to uh, John Sachau for, for uh, writing and publishing the summary report. And not least to Dr. Andreas Omland and Martin Krog, who is uh, not here with us today, for um, initializing and take, taking the um, initiative for this uh, report series and flagship uh, project. Uh, this uh, 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 webinar today has also been recorded and can be viewed, uh, uh, is, will be available on the UI homepage uh, bre- shortly and also on the UI Facebook page. Uh, Please, this is our last planned uh, webinar from the Stockholm Centre of Eastern European Studies for this year. Uh, 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 But who knows? Uh, uh, There's a lot of things going on and we will come back uh, reinforced next year with a series of of webinars and seminars and report series Um, and so keep out looking for that and please have a closer look at the reports that has been published in this uh, series so far. They they contain a wealth of of detail and also in terms of policy recommendations and I would also like to uh, extend a warm thank you to Hedvig Pettersson who is a Centrum coordinator, uh, and without whom uh, none of this would have been possible, neither today's uh, uh, webinar nor the report series. Uh, With that, uh, it's a little bit too early, maybe to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. But uh, I hope to see you all, and we'll keep in touch. Thank you from Stockholm for joining us today.